a stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another episode of Relentlessly Resilient, where real people share real-life experiences and the tools they've developed to move forward and live their best life. I'm Jenny Taylor. And I'm Michelle Scharf. Today, I'm excited to bring on the show Joshua Chamberlain. He is someone I met at a vigil last week, the vigil for Izzy, a little girl who was bullied. She's 10 years old and ended up taking her own life. It was a tragic story, but Josh got up and shared his own story of being bullied and his own experiences of discrimination, racism in the school setting. And it touched me so much. I really wanted to bring him on and have him be able to share his story with our viewers. I think it's a timely message. I think it's an important conversation to have. And I am so excited to have you with us, Josh. Tell us who you are and tell us about you. Yeah, of course. Um, I'm really grateful to be on today and that we bumped into each other. I mean, this has said a lot. Coincidence? I don't think so. But I think it's great that we have this opportunity to discuss the school system, but also racism and then also resiliency. I think it's a great direction to go with how the world is going. Resiliency is so important. Yeah. But I'm Josh Chamberlain. Uh, I was born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and um, adopted and raised in Holiday, Utah. Um, I was adopted when I was two days old, so I've been in Holiday, Utah my whole life. I have a younger brother and then two older sisters. We have all just lived here in uh, Holiday. Uh, I live right by Crestview Elementary School. Actually, our backyard touches Crestview Elementary School. Kind of the unique thing about me is I went to a decent amount of schools in the Granite School District. That's the school district that I grew up in. From William Penn to Crestview, I went outside for a couple of years to Reed School, which was a private school, and then I went to Olympus Junior and Ole High School. So that's kind of where I grew up and the schools I went to. Um, and then, yeah, I would say just a little more about me, what I do on my daily. I'm a realtor, but I also consider myself to just be an activist, somebody that people can talk to about hard situations. I try to be understanding and open-minded um, and not... Um, come down on people for not knowing something or knowing something. I think it's really important to have um, people from all spectrums and places to have open discussion without that judgment or that heaviness that may come from those conversations. I absolutely agree. So one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is I'm originally from Sacramento, California. I moved here 30 years ago. And when I moved here, I was just like, oh, this is a sea of white. I'd never, I've never been around so many white people. And I know that's funny. You're laughing. But I was raised in California. And mm-hmm. I, I was raised in Citrus Heights. It wasn't a super integrated. I, I wonder what the numbers were at the time. But we had several black kids at our school, as well as some Asian and, and some other nationalities as well. And races. And so it wasn't 
an unfamiliar thing, right? And then when I got married, I married young, moved to off of Florin Road in Sacramento, which is actually the gang and ghetto area of Sacramento. That was where we bought our first home. And then we moved across into the Greenhaven Pocket area, which was a nicer area, but predominantly Italians and Asians. So we lived in, in high populations. That first home that we purchased was in a black neighborhood. All my neighbors were black except for a couple people down the street. And I think a couple people on the street behind me. So I was accustomed to being around multiple races. And I became very comfortable with that. I had a daycare. And uh, I think I had one or two white Caucasian children in my daycare. And the rest were, you know, either mixed race or like I had Japanese family. I had a, a, a family from France, actually so European. And um, I had Asian and black and a variety of kids in in that daycare. So when I moved to Utah after being in that uh, space, it was just really difficult to move here and just be in a sea of white. I thought it was the strangest thing. I just wasn't used to it. It's been interesting because we've had some deep conversations in our society in the past year with uh, the Black Lives Matter, the the situations that, that have been uh, the Breonna Taylors, the George Floyd. Mm-hmm. Is that his name? Yeah. Yes. All of a sudden I was like, I'm not sure if that was his name, but yes, it was George Floyd. And, you know, we, we've had kind of an uprising in our society that has not been pleasant. At least it's been uncomfortable for me. And I'm a white girl in Utah. So what is it like to be a black man in Utah who's been raised in this environment? And how do you see the discussions taking place? Like, how have you viewed that lens? What is that like? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Obviously, growing up in Utah, there are things that I have become familiar to and have adapted to being in a predominantly white area, neighborhood, teachers, friends, family, you have a part of you that realizes you're different and you acknowledge that and react maybe inside a lot to things that people say or do that you wouldn't necessarily want them to say or do. But the outward expression has always been a hard thing, not because somebody's told me I couldn't, but because for me, naturally, it felt uncomfortable to, you know, say to a church leader, a person in position of power, a parent, a cousin, a neighbor, tell them that they're saying something that may hurt you or somebody else when they're not trying to sometimes. And sometimes when they are, they don't put you in that category because of how you're raised or where you're raised. And they talk about people that you feel like are like you, like they're not you. And it was an interesting balance because... I'm I'm curious, like, are you saying like sometimes they say things, but, and it's something about someone's blackness or color or race or whatever. But then it's like, oh, but that doesn't apply to you because you were raised white. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, that's got to be the strangest. It is strange. Experience. (laughs) That's all I can. Yeah, I can't even fathom that. Of course I can't, you know? Yeah. Go ahead. Continue telling us. Yeah, but, but yeah, I think so with that balance to find this. It's not desensitized. You're very still, your senses are all still there, but you find a 
muted response per se to things that are said. And that to me was finally kind of broken for me throughout my schooling. And it was moments where I got to express myself because somebody else said something negative about me or towards me or about black people around me. And my reaction was not muted or concise or kind necessarily even. It was truthful from what I heard them say and my reaction. And in those moments, those pocket moments, through schooling actually is where the first thing happened um, in first, second grade. And then every year after that, and pretty much every school I was after that, I had a situation or several situations where Josh was a nice kid who was, was friends with everybody. But when somebody came to that category or said something in that realm, I would speak up. It wasn't something that I was quiet on because it was so uncomfortable. And I felt like that was a time where I could express myself because to me it was absolutely and just clearly wrong, even though to some people around me it wasn't. For me, in my mind, it allowed me to speak up. That's where. Can you give us some examples of that? Yeah, I can. So in second grade, and I will refrain from using any names. I will mention Granite School District just because I think it's very important. People are talking about Davis School District and, you know, different school districts. It happens in every school district. It's a matter of kids are reporting it and parents are reporting it. It's not that it's just happening in Davis. And I think if they did a really clear look at other school districts and actually talked to the brown and black kids at these schools, they'd find that this happens at every school district. There is a dismissiveness between faculty, administration, and students of race and racism happening. And I only say that because I've been in Granite School District my whole life and had a problem every grade school year with that. So I can't imagine that that, that was recorded anywhere. But right. I, I do want to discuss that a little bit. But so yeah. one of my situations was just a, it was actually my best friend at the time. I felt like I had, we were in a situation where I kind of stole the limelight. I was a talker during class and our recess and a lot of people gravitated towards me. And I felt like I made a joke or had taken the attention away from what we were talking about, which he was kind of leading. And in that, he used the N-word towards me that I feel like to say, you know, create some attention to him and also kind of bring me down off the laughter and the, the attention I was getting at the moment. And I remember looking and I wasn't really sure what to say or think, but, and for, by the way, pretty much all these situations and with me crying, running to the principal's office and immediately going home, I was never a fighter. I've never hit anybody in school. Um, and I did want to mention that because I think that is something that people resort to. There's no need to be physical, to be destructive in this. I don't think that helps anything, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, I always was somebody who I tried to use the system. I believed at one point, and I still believe that there's a chance that the system can work. But at this time in my life, I was young enough to believe the system worked, that if I went to the principal or a teacher or a parent, that it would be resolved through that process. So I, I'll bend my parents for raising me like that. <laughs> but um, there's a lot of times where people probably would have said, no, I feel like you could have hit somebody there and it would have been fine. In this situation, I ended up running to the principal's office and my mom came and picked me up. And the situation is regularly somebody that is close to you or a teacher. It's not somebody random because they don't have that connection to you and you're not really in their sphere. So it's interesting because those situations really happen with people, you know, or family, which is a little bit sad, but also makes sense. It's kind of the people you're around. That's where you're going to hear it. And the reason I tell that situation is because that is, it is almost a copy and paste of what happened over and over again. Sometimes I wouldn't say it and I'd come home with my mom to tell my attitude was off 
or my dad would be like, I can feel like something didn't happen, something happened at school. And that's where I'd break down. It wasn't always a cry at school and come home. And sometimes I come home and cry at home. Or And the reason I'm talking about crying too is because I do want to talk about resiliency and emotion with black men and with men in general. But no, I yes, think that I you hit. I, I think <laughs> so. that a lot of the points that you're making are really important. I love the fact that you pointed out you never hit anyone. And let's talk about that. There's mm-hmm. a, a, a stereotype that black men are violent. Yes. Right? So, like, if you had said that, someone might not have thought it was upbringing or this or that or whatever. They might think, well, that's just your nature, right? That's right. a racist right. attitude. Right. That's and it's an inappropriate. It's well, an inappropriate stereotype. I, well, and I felt like I had to point it out too because I feel like some people have asked, "Well, what was your reaction?" Asking if that was the case. Um, so I like to point out that no, I never got any altercation based mm-hmm. on that stereotype. But I am not based because I knew that was a stereotype. I was a kid; I didn't know that, that was even a thing. But it just didn't occur to me that that would resolve anything. So. Mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> well, I I did meet you briefly, but you such a tender heart and and a very stellar upstanding man. That happened repeatedly over and over and over again. What did that do to your psyche? Like what was the messages that you were being sent? So, this happened several times and one that we'll get into is the six I call it my sixth grade experience. That's kind of where, for me, things turned, where I became very, um, where my personality changed, where my perspective on, you know, leaders, administration, adults kind of changed. But I will say my psych just kind of started to say, you know, trust is has to be earned. It's not given. And I always kind of gave my trust to people, my friends, and so forth. And I started to sit back and say, mm-hmm. If you do that, sometimes you say too much or give people too much to work with. Mm -hmm. I stopped telling people I was adopted right when I'd meet. I used to think that was kind of a cool thing. I stopped saying that because it became actually something that was being used against me. Or I'd stop telling people that my parents were white. And, you know, it's interesting because I started to do that again at one point to protect my, to see if it could protect me. That's a whole nother conversation. But it was, it was always about playing that game of when what to share with this person so that I don't get judged or I get the best opportunity in this situation yeah from the get-go how do I get rid of the initial barrier of okay this is a black guy in a pretty white area why is he here that's that was what I had to defend I felt like um, over and over again and so it just changed for situation but that let me um we need to take a quick break yeah when we come back let's get into the sixth grade experience let's get into the the weeds of that all right we'll be right back a gun in the face then all of a sudden they all kind of lined up they pointed their guns at me and this is the point where i thought i'm gonna die today started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. 
You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, and we're back. Josh, you were just telling us that there was an experience in sixth grade that really led you down to a path that really changed you. Share with us that experience. Yeah, so I attended um, for sixth grade. I was at Crestview Elementary. Um, they had not yet combined and made kind of the middle school thing. It was still junior high elementary school. It was sixth grade. And in my particular classroom, I remember we actually, in our grade, had a, I would say, the most, if not, like I will say the most, I won't say the only, I think there were a few other kids of color, but what was interesting about my particular class is there was four or five of us black and brown kids, and we were all sat at the same table by the teacher's desk. And these are things that at the time I noticed, but they didn't occur to me to be an issue. But as I tell this story, I wonder you know, kids are trusting and they're, they're not looking for that. So I never really looked for that issue until the situation happened that kind of brought it all full circle for me. But we'd always get in trouble more than everybody else. I mean, the whole class would be talking and we'd be shushed. And it was close enough to her desk that if she leaned over to the desk, she was pretty much on our table. So I remember often from behind me feeling you know, that shout or that presence of just, you guys need to be quiet. You guys need, you guys are out of control. But it was always directed at our table. I remember that. And other kids actually, through the last couple of years, I've asked for people to recall experiences from that class because what happens with some of these situations, which we can talk about, is you mentally block them out. They get really, they start to replay. So the only thing you can really do is get rid of them and you forget all the details of what happened. So I asked some people to recall it and they're recalling some of these things to me. And some of them I remember clearly, too. And so with that happening pretty often, I kind of started feeling a little bit off. There was a chart, and sometimes we'd get less points on that chart, or like when we had class things where you're at tables and you would have to raise your hand and present, we'd always get docked on those or whatever it was. It always seemed to be a little harder to be at that table. And now looking back, it's, to me, pretty clear why. But one experience um, at that school Uh, made it so that I came in that morning, but I never went back after that experience. I went to Reed School, which is what I mentioned, went to a private school halfway through the year because I was on the safety patrol, by the way, which was not easy to be on. There was a select amount of sixth graders. They had to have certain qualities, and you had to kind of try out and work for that. And I really wanted to be, and I was on that group. And one week, I forgot my safety patrol flag. And... Uh, it happened before in our class, I and she had extra ones in the closet, or the principal had an extra one, or whatever. Well, when I forgot my safety patrol flag, I was berated in front of the whole class. How stupid I was, how I forgot a flag, that's my only thing I needed to do to be able to do this, da-da-da-da-da. And this went on for about five minutes with me bawling my eyes out, and I ended up leaving before the bell rang, I remember. And I could hear the bell right about when I got home. You can hear the bell from my backyard. And I could hear the bell, and I remember running my front door, running in my parents' room, and I was just bawling my eyes out. My mom was asking what happened. I told her, and my mom is a mama bear. <laughs> she um, she did a, put a lot of work into going and talking to the principal and the teacher and trying to figure out the situation. However, she was met with complete resistance that there was any issue. 
Um, nothing was done in that situation except that I left the school and my friends and was kind of uprooted at that point from what was normal to me to kind of a unique situation. It was interesting because I went to a smaller private school and that was kind of a weird school, so I went to another one. There was a lot of moving around for a little while, and I really didn't want to do that. I really didn't want to go to these schools. I wanted to be back with my friends, but my mom kind of feared that situation happening again and now it being kind of blown out of proportion, or maybe not blown out of proportion, but it being such a big deal, going back might look kind of, it might be harder for me to go back now. Uh, I yeah, but I mean, I've experienced this up in Davis County with my own kids. Okay. When, once you have a child that has a problem, then you become the problem child and everything becomes a problem. Right, right. That's exactly right. And a few other things just with the situation. So that same day, and I'm sharing this because at um, the vigil that we met at, these other kids shared their their stories and the situations they had seen and experienced, but they also trust leadership and administration, and they don't know what to do with it. It's not a kid's job to protect other kids. They do, and that is great, but it is an adult's job to do that. Kids respect and trust that, trust adults, so they don't know when you're doing something right or wrong. They can feel it maybe sometimes, like I think one of the children there said, they could feel that something was off, but they didn't know what to do with that because they're just growing and learning. And I had a friend that went home that day and bawled her eyes out to her mom. And I didn't know the story till years later, bawled her eyes out to her mom about what had happened and how it was awful and how she would be affected by that. I also had my grandmother, my granny message me the other day when I posted about the vigil and she was here two weeks after that situation with me in sixth grade. And she remembers the kid, some friends being over at our house and they recalled that, now that I had left, she had chosen another girl at that table to pick on. And they just said her name. They didn't know about the table, but they said they are now picking on so-and-so. She's now picking on so-and-so because you left. And my grandmother was like, I don't know why I didn't drive over to that school and go start a fight with that lady. <laughs> she's, she's like, she's a grandma there. I mean, <laughs> but what's interesting is it doesn't just affect that one kid. It affects the whole classroom. Everybody saw that. Everybody knew it was weird. It was not shout it was screaming i mean vein popping neck screaming so nobody will ever forget that which is super important to remember for these kids that they are seeing how adults treat kids and if you're lucky those kids will realize that that's not right but if we're unlucky it'll repeat that treatment they'll say oh if she can treat him like that then i can treat people that look like that like that and males their brains will start to form this idea without us even telling them so Right, actually, it's absolutely, it's modeled behavior, right? It's yes. it's what you see, it's what's normal. Nobody's calling it out for being wrong. It's just, it becomes modeled behavior. Right, right. And so that situation for me, that's where I lost my trust with people that were supposed to be there for me, for people that I could, I could go to ask for help. It created a lot of barriers between leaders and that I butted heads with education, the education system in general, I butted heads with, I didn't like school. I was actually pulled out of class pretty often because I was slow in reading. So they pulled me out of math. So I got really bad at math and that's just a poor school system. I don't think it has anything to do with race necessarily, but there was just things like that that had now had built all to this point of me now, not liking school very much, you know, trusting teacher and another couple experiences that happened there just to around that the year before, um, my teacher was teaching about To Kill a Mockingbird, I believe. And she wrote the N-word on the board. And that 
triggered me pretty heavily. I remember she caught my eyes at that point. I knew she had done so. She erased it really quick and kind of said, sorry, I should have written it on the board to the class. But I remember kind of the whole class looking at me right when she wrote that to kind of see like, and I just remember feeling so like, oh, I don't know what to say or do in this situation. So it, it was pretty distinctive moments where, you know, some people may consider educational or normal, um, even through schooling with books we read or the things we talked about that were not done accurately, correctly, or in the thought that it may hurt or not do the, not make the effect that they thought it was going to. Um, and I think that's really important while teaching that it is done well and right. So with that, that distrust that came, it was a pretty, you know, it was a pretty high mountain to climb over to gain that back for adults to gain that back or for me to give it back. They never, nobody really ever did anything to gain it back. So it was really up to me to process it and get it back. It, I, I never heard from that teacher again, um, from that principal, from Granite School District, um, anybody. Nobody ever really wanted to confront that. And I'm glad in this case that people are confronting it, but it's at way too big of a loss for the Izzy situation. Uh, absolutely. The, way too big of a loss. Way too big of a loss. A child should not have to give up her life in order yeah. for us to all start saying maybe there's a problem. Um, so, you know, I'm a Republican and I'm a conservative Republican in Utah. And some conservatives would call me a moderate, whatever. Depends on who you talk to in Utah. <laughs> but, um, but I care about people. And I've been pretty outspoken and I've taken some hits because it's it's become such a politically charged um, mm-hmm. subject. But I can tell you and uh, and I'm going to tell my listeners and people that are going to hear this, that living in Utah, the challenge I have with other white people telling me that racism isn't a problem here is you haven't experienced knowing anyone (laughs) that's not your race. Your likelihood of having a black family in your home for dinner is about zero. The population of black people in Utah is about 1%. I actually have a family that I do know, and I'm ashamed to say I haven't had them over for dinner, and I'm going to change that. Um, and but it's hard. We don't really see a lot of people of color in our state. And because we don't see them, we think that there's not a problem. And we think that there's not a problem with the way we think, act or speak. And I know and I'm nervous even having this discussion because I'm like, am I going to identify these things correctly? Am I going to be offensive in the way I speak? But I feel like I'm willing to take the risk that I might say it wrong and be messy because I feel yes. like this conversation needs to be had. I agree. I really appreciate you coming on and, and talking about it because what are we going to do? And you know what? We probably should take a break. And when we come back, let's talk about what are we going to do in Utah and how can we support the maybe few, but valuable people in our community that happen to be of another race. Let's talk about that when we come back.
And we're back. Thank you so much for having this discussion. I know I'm slightly a little bit uncomfortable. I'm not going to lie. And I went to that vigil and I thought, oh, there is, uh, they mentioned the ACLU and Black Lives (laughs) Matter. But if you have a politically charged emotion with Black Lives Matter, go to the ACLU. They have a white, they have a, what was the name of that class? Well, they have a race sensitivity course. Yes, a race um, sensitivity course. And I want to go participate in that. I have not done yeah. that. Is it virtual or in person? I mean, during COVID, I believe they had it Zoom too. Okay. It is. It has been held in person also. I'm not sure right now if it is one or the other or both. Yeah, I think when I heard that, I'm like, that's what I need to do. I need to start doing things for my community because I don't want to inadvertently be a silent voice that could have said something, you know, I just, I don't want to be the person that makes somebody in my community feel not accepted or wanted or loved or whatever. I don't want to be that person. And I want to be more aware of the things that I can do and the way I can carry myself and the way I can approach people in my community that maybe I wouldn't normally, or maybe I might not I don't know I I want to go learn because I want to be better that's all I can say I like that so tell me what do you by the way um, I want to have you back because this is a bigger discussion for another time and I have some other friends I'd love to bring on here and have like maybe a group discussion on this but you were adopted and brought to to Holiday Utah but you were adopted by two white parents correct so you were raised in a very white world but you are a black man, and culturally, you should be able to understand your own cultural history, your own who you are, where you come from, what, and and how do you do that if you're in in white Utah? Well, that's interesting that you said. So my two older sisters are white, and then I have one younger brother that's adopted that's also black, and it has been an interesting uh, navigation with my parents. Uh, they did several things when we were children to make sure that we got that. We are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We went to a group called Genesis, and they actually just celebrated. Uh, I don't know what year mark they celebrated, but the big celebration for them. And we used to go to that, and we did a lot of little things culturally in Utah that didn't match the culture of Utah, because they wanted us to, they wanted to make sure that we got a taste of where we came from in the sense of our ancestors and what that was about. And I think that's so important. School without, I'm not going to make this political, I promise everybody, but school (laughs) is another great place to teach about history of people. And you cannot block that from being in school. You have to teach the histories of everybody in America. And the cool thing is you don't need a month to do that. You don't need Black History Month. You just need to teach Black history with everybody else. Black history just needs to be taught to people along with a lot of other histories. Now, people are overwhelmed by that a little bit because you say, well, how do you teach all these histories? Well, I think it's actually about teaching American history with everybody that was actually involved in it. That's a, right. It doesn't take, you know, it's the white person didn't do the first of everything. That's just what we teach about. And it's key that to define what that means because white is now so generally used, even by myself and a lot of people. That could be Italian. That could be German. That could be... We should give people their credit from where things actually came from. Right. Um, Nikola Tesla, you know, these people didn't just come from 
what is considered white America. They came from Europe, from a country that right. spoke a different language than English. So until we start doing that, people are going to keep feeling like there's a superiority complex and a privilege that isn't being addressed. Right. Um, and that privilege is it is a cultural and ethnic privilege that is being washed out of of our history. And it's very important to keep it there because then we see that there's a lot of people that contribute equally and some more than others. But generally speaking, everybody contributes something. And that is powerful to me. That's always been a powerful thing to me. The more I, the older I've got, the more I've learned that there's people that have done a lot of things in big groups and only one person gets the credit for that thing. And that is literally in school, we even see that in a group project. But we know that everybody did something in that group. Maybe not as much as the other person, but somebody did something. So let's start talking about those other people every now and then. Yeah. I think it'll be powerful in this school. I, I, and I agree with you. And you're right. Critical race theory is now like the big uh, new politicized whatever. But the problem I see is that there's a lot of fear around it. And there doesn't really need to be. Would you agree with that? No, no. I think the fear is that children will start to feel like everything that their ancestors did were wrong. But that's not the truth. There is a certain portion of the United States, the South, that made poor decisions during the Civil War. And before that, some of our founding fathers made decisions to help grow the economy by bringing, by enslaving people. But it doesn't mean that everybody that's white enslaved people. It doesn't mean that everybody that was black was a slave, actually. What right. we need to start talking about is not necessarily that point line as much as the contributions of all people. If people don't want to focus on enslavement, which I still think is important, then let's at least focus and be honest about who helped create each thing. Let's talk about who built America physically, which were enslaved people. Talk about their capability and ability versus how they were, which I've heard before in a history class, by the way, lucky that they came to America. So now that black people can be in America and have the freedoms that exist. That's been said to me before. That's baffling to me. That is not a privilege that black people have, that they were enslaved. I hope I never hear that again in school. But I'm just hoping that there is some type of way to come at a midpoint and say, well, let's just talk about a bunch of people that have accomplished things, no matter where they're from, and then show that the mistakes that were made through that process, we can overcome by adjustments in how we see people and how we value people and how we love people. And then I think there'll be a lot of a lot more acceptance of that idea of critical race theory, but also just teaching about race and how yeah, it affects us. I, I just wonder why we're so fearful of it. Like, here's the thing. If we start talking about it and we own up to the fact that some things really happened in our past that were not pleasant, they weren't beautiful and they weren't good or kind, but at the time they, it, it is what happened and we mm-hmm. just own up to it then can we start to heal and move forward? We we can't heal the things that we refuse to talk about. Right. Well, and I think there's a belief that we've done enough talking, that we've had those conversations. But the reality is what's happened is the majority of each group has not had that opportunity. Of course, in the top of all the school districts and the top of government, it is predominantly white. So if they feel like we've had that conversation, we've had it without asking the people that were actually affected, has that conversation been had? And how would you like to have that? Well, then those groups say, well, what about teaching about race this way? And they say, that's so extreme. Well, then you say, okay, well, how would you like to teach about it? Well, we'll just ban it. And then we'll 
continue to do it how we've done it. Well, that's not changed. That's obviously how we're teaching it isn't working because we're here today in November 2021 talking about race and the issues we're having. So right. we've got to change something. In a system well, and and you look at it. It's not what's been done. Even both sides of the political aisle. When you look at the majority of those sitting in seats of power that are making laws and representing all of us, they're still predominantly all white men. Right. And I'm not hitting bad on white men. I love men. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I certainly have plenty of white men in my life that I absolutely love and adore. But okay. I, I'm not going to say that it's all their fault. But I am going to say that we perpetuate electing these people into office over and over again. And I have to say, I am a white privileged woman in the state of Utah. I do not feel represented. There is not enough of white women who represent my thoughts, ideals, or values that are elected. And if that is true for me, then I also need to understand that we need to elect people of color as well. Not just here in Utah. We need to elect them all over the country, especially in communities where there's predominantly black communities, right? And um, sometimes that happens. uh, Sometimes it doesn't. But I, I think that it's hard for us. You you cannot say that a white male man who's probably more older than a lot of other people, <laughs> if they're elected, especially in Congress, um, are going to be able to represent us as a whole. It's just it's not true. We we need more representation across the board. We need women. We need people of color. We need a variety of voices to be able to have seats at the table where laws are being made and passed that that uh, impact all of us. And I, right. I I think that it is important that did get brought up at the vigil. And I actually am like, amen, like I can't agree with that enough. And I'd like to see more women be elected in the state of Utah and I'd like to see more variety of people, uh, whether they're religious or non-religious, there's. Utah is not made up of just Mormons, but we're predominantly governed by only Mormons. So, you know, I think that we need to start looking at the picture as a whole, as a total, right? Like, where are we electing people and are they truly representing all of the people that that they're going to basically set laws and govern over? Anyway, that's my soapbox. No, that's mine too. Um, <laughs> I know you wanted me to talk a little bit about the resilience portion of this. I do. And yes. What does resilience mean to you? Well, and for me, what it has been is I kind of want to talk a little about this just because it is still taboo and maybe even more of a stereotype or a taboo for black men. But it took several years and sometimes a pop up session here and now of counseling to work through many of those feelings. I had, and when I didn't address them, they started to grow. They grew through high school, and it grew in that system of education. It grew towards people in power. I always felt like it was so unfair how they did things, how easily they did them, and how hard it was sometimes for me to do the same thing. Even though I could have the same abilities, it still felt like I was at a disadvantage sometimes. Uh, But the resiliency came because I had an ability to check up on my mental self, And also, I had a family that was very supportive of that, of mental health, of talking about things, and about supporting each other. I never 
had an issue growing up where my parents said, you know, that's just how it is. Or they were always like, well, then let's figure out how we can fix that. So it it is super important to have those people that you can go to, somebody that you can talk to, whether that's a counselor or a person. But I really suggest that people have a counselor that professionally knows how to say something so you don't mess with your mind. But those were super key things. And resiliency, sometimes it has a quick turnaround. I did look up the definition because it told me to. <laughs> but it a quick turnaround. I will say resiliency. I'm going to add with like the endure part, endure resiliently, because it wasn't always a quick turnaround to be like, oh, yeah, I'm good with that. Oh, yeah. I mean, it took years to be able to drive past my elementary school and not feel a little sick in my stomach. I don't anymore. But it took a while to not have that repeat, repeat, repeat and play over and over again. Even the other day when I, right before I went to Izzy's thing, or it was right after I went home just to see if that same teacher taught, and they do. And I, you know, I've gone back and forth with, do I just write a letter? Do I talk to the district? Do I leave it? And the reason it made me a little bit, why it brought it up to me now, other more than any other time, is I thought about Izzy and I said, you know, I sure hope that people are doing their part, including myself, to make sure that kids are safe. I'm an adult now. And I'm going to stand on the soapbox if I need to protect children now. That's my job. I don't know what that looks like in this situation. Um, And I'm still trying to decide that. But I hope that each of us can come to a point that resiliency isn't about necessarily what we do to bounce back, but what we do to help others bounce back. That is the resiliency that we need to find within ourselves and around us. If we can help other people bounce back quick, and be that springboard that they can say things they need to and then not judge them, but support them and help them through their situation. That will help us be a more resilient and unified community. Unity is a huge thing that we're struggling with. That will unify us. That will that will make us more resilient. I love that. And I agree with it. And I feel like, you know, if we really do care about the children, if we really do want to make our community safe for everybody, then it doesn't require a lot. We don't have to argue whether racism exists or not. I'm going to say it does. And you <laughs> people can be mad at me. But what we do have to do is say, okay, I don't want to be a part of the problem. So how can I make sure that this child is safe or that my children understand that there's nothing wrong with that child that has more pigment in their skin? There are no different. Right. I, I say there are no different, but there actually are some differences, and some of those things should no, be celebrated, right? Right. But we should first teach our children, you can play with that black friend. Make sure that there are no kids on the playground that are standing alone and wishing that they had a friend to play with. Go. Reach out to them. Go play with them. Take them into your friend group. Like We have to start as parents having this dialogue with our children And we have to make it acceptable for our children to feel like it's okay, because what we have done and what we have created without maybe overtly doing it, intentionally doing it, is we haven't had the conversations. And when our kids are living in a sea of white and they stumble onto a black child in their classroom, if nobody said, oh, there's some people that are black and here's their heritage and and whatever, yeah, you can play with them. Invite them over to the house. Let's get to know their family. Unless we do that and make it okay, we're never going to change what we've got going here. And we've got to change it because we've got to all, all know at this point, we've got some problems and we need to address them. 
I love what you've said about the resilience coming from your family and that support group, and and then maybe the support group includes a professional counselor or. You know, unfortunately, Josh, you said in your experience, some of those that you should have been able to trust actually violated that trust, which led to a lot of the problem. But I'm I'm with you, both of you and Michelle, what you just said, that this can start in our homes. And I, I think we'll be teaching our children. I think our children will also be teaching us. I see I see in my children's generation a more inclusive mindset. I think they came that way. I think they're now we obviously can add to that in the conversations that we have in our families and in our communities. But I know that with my children, um, I see them being more open minded and more more inclusive. Now, again, they're not exposed to a lot of racial diversity where we live. But I think this concept that we're all different whether it's the color of our skin or our religion or the language we speak or the background or the employment of our parents, mm-hmm. how wonderful to celebrate those differences. And I think that's where we need to be careful not to try to erase the differences and pretend that they don't exist because I think the differences right. are what make us so beautiful as a people. You know, speaking of American general, Josh, I love what you said about let's just tell history how it really happened. We don't need to tiptoe around making sure we mention the black guy or the white guy or the this lady or the that person. Just tell it how it really happened. Men and women of different races and religious and, and geographical backgrounds have been involved in the building of this beautiful country. We've made mistakes. We've made progress. And I love celebrating that. And this conversation today has given me some good thought to, you know, what will I talk about with my seven children at home who do live in a predominantly white environment, but also looking to celebrate um, different differences besides just the race differences and really loving people for who they are. And I think that's what I've heard so much in you, Josh, um, this conversation about letting people be included, be included in the moment, be included in the telling of history, be included, included in the love and the concern and the connection. And I'm grateful for you and what you're sharing with us today. And Looking forward to future conversations. I do think we have work to do as a as a society, as a culture, as a country, I think nationwide. But I do think that if we can tap into the goodness of our hearts, you know, I think it's in there. We, we might need a little education. We might need a little bit of exposure and, and coaching. And maybe you can help me know what not to say or what might be completely insensitive. But when we'll let each other inside those walls and admit that I might mess something up, but what I really mean is I'm trying to get to know you. I'm trying to appreciate you for who you are. I am hopeful that we can make those changes in our culture, in our society. Uh, my heart goes out to Izzy's family, or her friends, her loved ones. Um, Josh, my heart hurts for you, what you experienced as a child, to think at the hand of a teacher who should, again, kind of be like that idol figure yeah. in your life caused years and years of that anguish. I hope that we can do better than that going forward by simply being a little more mindful, a little more open-minded, and and being willing to say, tell me about your differences. And again, to celebrate those differences rather than fear them, rather than hide mm-hmm. from them, and especially rather than trying to ignore them. Because I think that's where we swing too far. I, so thank I agree. you for sharing I think we all thoughts. kind of think that if we just ignore this, it'll go away, and yeah. it's not going away. And people are getting hurt. And so yeah. we, we've got to take a stand, and we've got to stand up and change things. Absolutely. Josh, thank you so much for being on today. I really appreciate oh, you. Thanks for having you. me on. Thank you yeah. so much. I, and I hope to be able to continue to grow and develop a relationship with you. And thank you so much for your open heart and showing up for Izzy's family and, and for just using your voice to make a difference. Thank you. Thank you.
Yeah, and to our listeners, we hope you've enjoyed what you've heard today and and can see just this different perspective as we speak about resilience. We've all been through different experiences in our life, whether it's a one-time tragic event or years of living in a certain environment or situation or struggles or challenges. If you or someone you know has a story that you're willing to share about real life and some of the real challenges you faced and some of the tools you've developed to live with resilience, we hope that you'll reach out and share those with us and with our listeners. You can find us on email at rrpodcast at ksl.com or on Facebook at Relentlessly Resilient and Instagram at Relentlessly Resilient Podcast. Remember, whatever you do today, remember to be kind. You have no idea the struggles others are dealing with in their own lives. Thank you. Have a nice day. A stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.